Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. So I'm going to start with this introduction today with Dr. Hassan Tata, and I want to read you all the full his full bio, even though he wants me just to say he is a husband, a father, and a surgeon. But I think everybody needs to know what he has done. So Dr. Teta is a U.S. Navy captain and associate professor of surgery at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and adjunct faculty at Howard University College of Medicine. He was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow from 2012 to 2013, assigned to the U.S. Congress Congressional Budget Committee. Currently, Dr. Teta is a thoracic surgeon for MedStar Health and Walter Reed National Military Center. He leads a specialized thoracic adaptive recovery team in Washington, D.C., and his research in thoracic transplantation aims to expand heart and lung recoveries and save lives. A native of Brooklyn, New York, Hassan received his BS from State University of New York, his MD from SUNY Downstate Medical Center, his MPA from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, his MBA from Johns Hopkins University Carey School of Business, and his MS in National Security Strategy with a concentration in Artificial Intelligence from the National War College. He completed his Thoracic Surgery Fellowship at the University of Minnesota and Advanced Cardiatric Surgery Fellowship at Harvard Medical School, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He is also the founder and principal of Teta Consulting Group, a best-selling author of four books, including Gifts of the Heart, Star Patrol, The Art of Human Care, and Seven Pillars of Life. He is, a board, he is board certified in thoracic surgery, general surgery, clinical informatics, and health care management, and is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives. He also received the Allen Sheridan Award by the Thoracic Surgery Foundation for Research and Education, was named a TEDMED Frontline Scholar, and is a TEDx speaker. He is alumnus of the Harvard Medical School Writers Workshop and Yale Writers Conference, and lives near Washington, D.C. with his wife, son, and daughter. Wow. I am honestly honored to be in your presence after that. Oh, no, not at all. I'm the one that's honored. And I, I, I always get embarrassed when uh, folks read that because then we don't have time to talk about other things. <laughs> oh, we're going to have plenty of time. <laughs> Hi, we made it to March. So now you have your March public service announcements. If you have not rated and reviewed the podcast yet, please do so. Also subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts, Instagram, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere. Also, my course is coming. It is going to begin April 19th. So that will be the first day of the course. If you are not signed up for my newsletter yet or have not put yourself on the wait list for the course, you will not hear much about it. If you are on my newsletter and wait list, you will hear a lot about it. So make sure you do that. Sign up at dramyrobbins.com. 
Also, please make sure you follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins and stay tuned for another great month full of amazing podcast episodes. I feel like, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but the content keeps getting better. So hopefully you're enjoying it and here's to springtime. I need to share with everybody how our day went today because we were supposed to record earlier today. This podcast isn't going to air for a while, but we were supposed to record this morning at 10 and I got on and I'm waiting and I'm like, okay, I'm going to reach out to his publicist, your publicist. And I reach out and they're like, oh, sorry, he got pulled into a transplant. Can, can you reschedule for later? And I'm thinking, his day is like, we're going to talk later today after he has saved someone's life and given them a new lung or heart or something. And I like picked up my kid from a pod. So just like honored for to be in your presence for what you've done today and excited to talk with you about healing. Absolutely. Well, I'm honored as well. Thank you so much. So let's get started because you had a near-death experience, but I think a little different than maybe, at least as you described in the book, different than how we talk about near-death experiences on this show, Mm. which is like a spiritual transformation Mm -hmm. when someone crosses over and then comes back. Mm -hmm. But tell us about what your experience was. Well, you know, there were some similarities, I would say. My experience uh, was in undergrad, actually. I was a just a junior in college, and I went to uh, visit a campus uh, for uh, interviewing for medical school. I had applied, I got an early decision uh, interview uh, offer to uh, come visit at Hopkins, at Johns Hopkins. I was super excited. I flew down to Baltimore from my well, my small arts and science college in upstate New York. And then when I when I came back from that interview, uh, you know, sort of on cloud nine, thinking that I was about to, you know, Again to Johns Hopkins and be a doctor. Uh, about uh, a few days later, I started to get really sick and and just kind of felt like it had the flu. And as the days went on, it got worse and worse. And I had this terrible headache and a stiff neck, and I had a super high fever. And it was a Friday afternoon. I remember it vividly. Yeah, it's like it's like an indelible experience. And I went to the uh, health center at the at the college campus and. They thought that I had a stomach flu and they said, well, we're going to give you some penicillin tablets and you just go back to your dorm room and try and take it easy over the weekend and drink lots of fluid. Dr. Robbins, I went to my room. I was an RA, so I had a single room, so I was all by myself and I kind of hunkered down and I was uh, trying to keep things down, but I kept throwing up and, and, and it was just really getting worse with my headache. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I had some fraternity brothers uh, that uh, were checking in on me pretty much throughout the day because we had an event that we had to do that weekend. And it turns out that uh, as the day went on, I just became more and more lethargic. Now, this was before, you know, cell phones were ubiquitous and, and you know, we were still analog back then. So, uh, you know, they came looking for me. And uh, when they did finally find me, it was a little after midnight and I was I was uptunded and, and, and out of it. And uh, I remember bits and pieces of, of, of things. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, looking back in retrospect, I realized how, how lucky I was. So my fraternity brothers took me into the, the hospital, uh, you know, basically carried me in. And when I got to the hospital, 
uh, it was really like, uh, you know, one of those movies where you just kind of come in and out of things and, and they were trying to keep me awake. And I, I know what all the things they were doing now that I'm a physician, but back then it was all foreign to me. But there was a very uh, burly uh, nurse that was uh, rubbing my sternum to kind of keep me awake. <laughs> and I kept looking up and I kept just seeing bright lights. And, um, and then at one point I remember being in a fetal position. Uh, and and uh, remembering uh, some people holding me down and saying, don't move, we're going to stick a needle in your back. And I was kind of like, okay, I'm out of it. And then the next time I remember sort of, uh, you know, that, that sort of initial experience was when I looked up and I saw all bright lights and I was like, oh no, this is it. I've, <laughs> I've crossed over, right, proverbially. And then, and then, and then I saw in the come into focus of a few people standing over me with masks on, which, you know, now everyone's wearing a mask, but back then, all these folks were wearing a mask, and uh, I remember the doctor saying something to the effect of, you have a very serious infection, Hassan, and um, you're going to be in the hospital for a while. And then I don't really remember much of anything else. I, I do recall kind of waking up intermittently and being in sort of this isolation chamber. I was sort of like the, the kid in the bubble, and <laughs> and I had a tube in every orifice of my body at, at one point, and... Uh, and when I emerged from all of that, you know, I, I had lost some hearing. Um, I was having some seizures after my recovery and discharge from the hospital. And of course, at this point, everyone's probably wondering, well, what did I have? Well, it turns out I had bacterial meningitis. Yeah, I was going to say my son, and, they thought, had it when he was a baby and they had to do the, the puncture, the yeah, lumbar, lumbar puncture, right. And, you know, as you know, and, and, and those who have ever been, you know, I guess, touched by bacterial meningitis, you know, either directly or indirectly by family members or friends know that it's a pretty lethal disease. And, um, you know, every, every year there's a, a number of people typically in college, college age, uh, you know, sort of age group and students that, that pass away uh, because it's a pretty infectious and it can be quite lethal. Uh, and it's, of course, an inflammation and, and infection of the, you know, the meninges is with the covering of the, uh, the brain and the spinal cord. Uh, and so I had a really serious infection. I, I fortunately uh, recovered. And I, I, you know, now that I know a lot more about, you know, medicine and, and what I had back then, it's really remarkable that the, the physicians that took care of me um, were, were, were really good at, at uh, you know, not dismissing the presentation that I had as, as, as what it looked like on surface. Here I was, you know, college kid on a Friday night, college campus, coming in after midnight, looking lethargic and uptunded, being carried in by two other guys, you know, <laughs> the, the, right. you know fraternity guys. So yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, maybe it's too much to drink or something. He must have taken something. And, you know, to my, my fraternity brother's credit, and then, again, the staff at the hospital, you know, they said, listen, this guy doesn't drink. He doesn't do anything. He, he's, he's not taking anything. He's sick. Something's wrong with him. Uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily the – differential diagnosis that comes top to mind and uh, when you think about it you know I, I think I'm putting myself in issues I would have sort of dismissed it too oh, put him in the stretch and let him kind of sleep it off but it turns out that they did have the acumen and the, and the sort of uh, you know suspicion that maybe something is serious that was happening and it turns out that mine was sort of an index case you know ultimately uh, they had to do trace contact because of what happened it, it is very infectious and so all the people that were connected to me or had come in contact with me in the you know, preceding days had to take a prophylactic antibiotic. 
And uh, when the public health officials, uh, you know, finally sort of made their assessment, they concluded that I must have contracted it while I was in Baltimore, because fortunately, no one else had it on campus, and it hadn't spread to any of my contacts at the time. Um, so it was just one of those situations where, you know, I, I kind of came, you know, close to this brush of death and realized, <clears throat> you know, in a very visceral and, uh, you know, experiential way, what it means to be a patient, like a real patient, you know, helpless, anxious, <laughs> you know, relying on others and not knowing what's going on long before I became a doctor. And I, I think it really made an impression on me in terms of how I approached my, uh, you know, practice of healing and, you know, my specialty of surgery and, and, and pretty much the rest of my outlook on, on everything. Uh, and I, I think that experience, you know, it, it certainly left a mark and it, it made a big difference to me. So how is it that you think of healing now? Because in the book, you talk about healing being, um, I think you say, like, you use an acronym, LEARN, right. to think about how you heal others. But how do you think about, like, the healing and the healer? Sure. And how they sort of work together? I mean, because that's, that's what you're t you talk about in the book. Yeah, I do actually. Um, and so that learn that you um, you mentioned, uh, it, it turns out that uh, that was a, a mnemonic that I, I came up with as a way to um, provide a framework in my mind and also for you know students that I teach, colleagues of mine that I, I encounter in terms of how they should approach a patient. Uh, and it's an easy mnemonic to remember. I, I'm not that smart, so I like to use tools to help me uh, remember things. So like learn is something pretty simple. Like I wanna learn about my patient. Well, what does that mean? And I wanna learn about them, meaning, you know, the L is for listen. And, and that was a very, you know, key element of any encounter that you have with a patient is listening. And I'm sure in your practice, I mean, that's what you do. If you don't listen, you, you don't even have a clue or an anchor in terms of where to start, where, the, where to guide the session, or even how to treat and care for your patient. Right. So listening is really key. And, and it's, it's more than just like, oh, well, let me hear the person. Listening is an active kind of you know, experience and an active uh, thing. So listening is the first thing. And then empathize is the E. Um, a is the affinitize, and that's me telling myself that whatever treatment that I'm going to provide for this patient after I've listened to them, after I've empathized with their situation, I need to make my treatment something that's going to have an affinity to them. So in other words, if I just prescribe anything like what I prescribed for Mr. Johnson two days ago to Mrs. Smith, it may not work because there may be side effects, there may be different things, and they may not even, you know, uh, be receptive to that kind of therapy. Uh, and then repeating is very important. So I like to repeat the things that I'm telling them, uh, it, especially when patients are there in that moment where they've waited probably a long time to see you, sometimes weeks or months, especially in my, my kind of discipline, which is a specialization. Uh, so I wanna make sure that in that moment, I give them ample opportunity to really understand because when folks are nervous, as I was when I was a patient, I can imagine asking a question is very intimidating, not to mention if the doctor tells you, did you understand what I said? You're going to just kind of like, yeah, nod your head and you have no clue what they said. And then you might have family members that are there and they're intimidated. And then what I've realized is that sometimes the patients will leave that encounter and they have not actually had all of their needs and, 
and concerns addressed. So I like to repeat things. And then this is something that I think will really resonate with you. And, and when you think about what you talk about with the, you know, the space in between and the presence is N is for now and knowing what your patience now is. And, and we find, and I know you've, you had this experience, we find in healthcare that many patients come to us with a, you know, a chief complaint, which is what we like to call it. And it may be a headache, it may be a sore thumb, it may be a, a you know, fever or, or stomach pains or whatever it is. But if you go through this mnemonic and you learn about the patient, and if you really truly listen to them, you empathize, you, you sort of affinitize what your therapy is going to be, you repeat, you know, not only what they're saying to you, but what you're telling them, and you know what their now is, and especially appreciate what their now is, you'll actually find that the reason that they're there is not because of what they said they're there for, but it's probably something else. And it's probably something actually that's related to a behavioral health or an anxiety or a stressor or just a question that they just didn't get answered and they're trying to seek an answer and try and get a remedy for something that's concerning them that may not be anything related to what it says on the chart or what the person initially screened them for. But you'll never get there if you don't give them the time and space to do that. And people will say, well, how do you have time to do that? You know, there's so much pressure to get people in and out. Um, and it turns out it doesn't really take very long to do this, especially the listening part. You've probably met individuals for the first time where they've shared their entire life story with you. And you look at the clock and it's like, oh, wow, two minutes or three minutes went by. <laughs> and it's like, that's not a lot of time. But on average, in the health professional, and they've done studies on this. And this is one of the things I teach my students and my residents and, and my colleagues about all the time. On average, it is found that in the healthcare professional's, you know, sort of ecosystem, the patient will be interrupted within the first 16 to 21 seconds of them encountering a, a, a healthcare provider, whether that be a nurse screening them, the doctor, and they'll be interrupted with a question, with a qualifier, or with something that detracts them from actually getting to tell their story. And then you have not listened to what their story is, and you will be addressing something that quite frankly may not be their concern. So healing, to me is embodied yeah. in all of that. I know it's a long way to answer the question, but that's where it really begins, learning about the patient. Well, and I was going to ask, how do you feel like that impacts outcomes? Because I think so often physicians or, you know, really in, in almost any field, people aren't listening to the other person, you right. know, the person that's there to, to get help. And so they totally miss. And the collaboration, you know, when people even call me and say, what, I need a new therapist, or I need a therapist, and right. who do you recommend? And my, my response is always the most important piece of therapy is the relationship between sure. therapist and patient. If you don't have that, it doesn't matter if this person is the best, most, you know, amazing credentialed therapist out there, if you can't right. connect with them and you don't feel a relationship between them, you're not going to get better. Absolutely. Well, I'll give you two examples that will sort of, I think, uh, answer the question, which is a very good one. How does, you know, a, a learned framework and, and sort of my philosophy on healing affect and impact outcomes? 
So let's take, for example, and I like to use this example because it's one that I think many people can identify and relate to, especially if you've taken care of patients in a primary care setting. An individual that comes in with diabetes, chronic diabetes, you know, and maybe a little blood pressure as well, you know, maybe a little overweight. And, you know, that's probably identifies a lot of people in the practice, you know, whether you're seeing them for a specialty uh, visit or you're seeing them from primary care. And, and Ms. Johnson, let's call her that, comes in and you're seeing her again, you know, like you always do every few months. And again, her hemoglobin A1C is high. You know, she's, she's, she's starting to complain of some blurry vision. So now you're thinking, wow, she's probably starting to have some end organ damage. She's had chronic diabetes for a while. Now give her the time and space to listen. And, and, and I've, I've actually had this, you know, and I, I've used this technique. This is why this story is so great is that, you know, I'm going to use my learn technique. Now I'm going to just listen to her and I'll ask her, you know, Hey, Ms. Johnson, how are things going? Well, you know, the diabetes and the high blood pressure. I said, no, I know. I understand that. But what, what's, what's bringing you joy? What's, what's going on at home? Oh my gosh, my grandkids. And you just see her light up, right? And, and, and I, you know, that's not something that's going to typically come up, right? But if you just gave her some space to just talk and say, what's going on? I mean, she was there routinely because that's what they told her to do. Come and check your sugar and your blood pressure, get the visit. But now she's talking about these grandkids. And I'm listening to this. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to empathize with her. I don't have grandchildren, but I do know that people that I know that have grandchildren tell me that it is the greatest joy in life to have a grandchild. And I hope to someday experience that. But I know. I, also, I always say, I want my kids to be my grandchildren. <laughs> I yeah. want to enjoy them the same way my parents enjoy my kids. Absolutely. So that is, so that, so now I'm empathizing with her and I'm like, wow, she loves her grandchildren. Okay. But she's here for a diabetes checkup and a visit. All right. I'm going to affinitize something. I've been telling her, Hey, you need to lose weight. You need to my, you check your blood pressure. You need to check your blood glucose. You stop eating the sugary sweets and all that stuff. But now I'm going to affinitize my treatment and my therapy to her. Cause now I've listened to her and I've empathized with her. Right. And here's how I'm going to do it. You know, Miss Johnson, those grandkids you love, I'm sure they love you back. But you know what? If you don't take care of your diabetes, you might not get to see them graduate. And wouldn't that be terrible? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you want to see them graduate from high school, maybe even college, maybe go to medical school or law school, become someone famous? Well, listen, why don't we come up with a plan for how you can get there? Now, my treatment is totally different, right? And I think, and, it's, and I've seen it work, her understanding and appreciation of what her therapy is, is not going to be, well, the doctor told me to take this pill. The doctor told me to check my blood pressure. The doctor told me to check my blood glucose. It's, I'm doing this so I can take care of and be with and see the thing that's most important to me, my grandkids. So now I'm going to have a totally different approach to my losing weight, maybe my watching my sugar, maybe my you know, my, my walks and the things that everyone told me that I should be doing, because now my purpose is a little bit different. It's not because the doctor told me to do it or because they're tracking something called an A1C, a hemoglobin A1C that she probably has no idea what it means or <laughs> what that is. I mean, that's something for us. And when I've done that and I've used that kind of technique for my patients in the specific situation or their condition that they have, I find that it does make a difference. And then when she comes back to see me, I can see, you know, the enthusiasm for the child and her grandkids is even higher. It's even more pronounced. 
And I'm telling her now, my treatment is, are you taking those pills? Are you checking your sugar? My treatment now and the way that I repeat my therapy to her is, hey, we doing all the things we can so we can see your grandkids graduate. You wanna go on that trip with your grandkids? You wanna be able to have the energy to play with your grandkids? Do you wanna make sure that you're gonna be able to see your grandkids? Let's do all these things that we talked about so that you can be healthy, be strong and be around for them. So and I'm that, understanding that now. Yeah, and that, that, that impacts their outcomes. Well, and is that what you mean? Because it's almost like you're a soul doctor and a thoracic surgeon. Like, is that what you mean by tapping into someone's purpose or, absolutely, yes. you know, purpose-led yes. healing? Yes, absolutely. So the second, I, I tell you, I have to give you two examples. So the second example of this learned philosophy in terms of impacting outcomes comes exactly from what you just asked. So surgery. So I use the primary care example, but my, my patients are typically surgical patients. So patients that need a cabbage or have a structural heart problem, they need a new valve or something to that effect. Well, when I've taken care of patients, and this is across the board spectrum with surgery, I recognize that if patients come to me and they don't have something worth living for, it could be the most benign surgery or it could be something really complicated with lots of complications. But the ones that have this purpose and they have this sort of feeling and sense of living for something are going to do extraordinarily better. And so I want to tap into that. So I ask them, what is it that's important to them? What is it that's, you know, meaningful to them? So that I can get them to think about that and have sort of a positive outlook on what's going to happen to them. I mean, that's a pretty scary thing to say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to crack your chest open. We're going to stop your heart, put you on a bypass machine, and then we're going to do a bunch of stuff to your heart, and then we're going to close you up with wires and and then you're going to have a tube in your mouth and you're going to be in the ICU. I mean, that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. But if I get them to think about, hey, I want to get back to hunting. I want to get back to playing with my grandkids. I want to get back to my business that I want to run, you know, or I want to get back to my art. I want to get back to my work. I want to get back to my family. Then we have focus on that. And all this other stuff is not as consequential. And I believe when you have this good outlook, and I knew it for myself. I mean, if I think about the statistics for me surviving meningitis in my, own, in my own experience, I mean, very minuscule. It was a miracle that I did. But my purpose at that time was I knew that there was this acceptance letter, at least so I thought, from Johns Hopkins, and I had to stay alive. Like, you know, meningitis, meningitis. I don't care. I mean, something's <laughs> going on. I don't I mean, I'm not sure what's happening, but I need to stay alive. And I knew that's what drove me to stay alive. Now, it's a wonder, you know, if the age of, the age would have been different and I would have gotten messages and, and information instantaneously, who knows how I would have, what kind of outcome I would have had. Because it turns out after I got out of the hospital and I, you know, I kind of convalesced for a little bit, a little bit, I found out that I got rejected from Hopkins. So I probably would have lost some hope there. But that was really what kept me going. I'm, I'm convinced of it because I had this burning desire to be a doctor. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that the, the, uh, the uh, doctor that took care of me, you know, he knew that from my friends and from all the visitors I had. Mm -hmm. So this ER doctor, I'll never forget, the ER doctor actually came to visit me while I was recovering on the ward, like a couple weeks later. And he, he learned about my desire to become a doctor. And he showed me in the big textbook what I had. And it was like something that left a meaningful impression with me. I mean, he took the time to come and just, you know, tap into my purpose and, and encourage it. And that was something that was so awesome. And I knew what that meant for me. That was such a boost and such a lift at that time that if I can do that and tap into that really powerful, you know, you know, uh, you know, 
essence of what the person really wants to be, that's going to impact their outcome. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because I know it did for me. It worked for me and I've seen it work for my patients. Well, I love that too, to think about just for everybody who's listening right now to think about like, if they were your patient, and you were to ask them that what would their response be, you know, because that is like, what is your immediate response, I think is, is the part of our essence, right? That's the part of us that keeps us going that keeps us alive that keeps us moving forward. Absolutely. So what are, can you talk a little bit, because I wasn't aware of the story of Hippocrates and um, <laughs> I just, I just loved it so much that that's how you started the book. But for people who don't know, what is the story of that? Because I think obviously people probably know about the Hippocratic Oath and things like that. But sure. Where did it come from and how do you think about that in your work? Oh, that's a great question. So I had this uh, opportunity to travel to this little Greek island called Kos. Uh, it's in the Western Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, depending on guess, where your vantage point is, uh, really close to, to Turkey, actually. So it's all the way on the east side of the Mediterranean. Uh, and uh, it turns out this is a very popular destination for medical conferences. And this happened to be the, the conference that I went to was the World Society for Cardiothoracic Surgeons. And I had a, uh, some research that I was presenting there. So I've traveled from, at the time, Minnesota, all the way to, <laughs> to this small island in coast. And while I was there, I, you know, I was all nervous about my presentation. But once I finally got that out of the way, I had probably a, a little bit over 12 hours left before I was going to leave the next day. And, uh, you know, everyone was talking about how famous this island was, but I didn't really understand what it was and, and why it was famous. And it was a very small island. So I decided to go on this like sort of self-guided tour. And I took a bike and I uh, rented a bike and I started riding around the island. And I went to this temple because they were like, you got to go to this temple if you're here. And the temple was this healing temple of Asclepolis. So it turns out that this is a healing temple where, you know, at the time was the Mecca. It was like the Cleveland Clinic or the Mass General of the day, right? <laughs> this was like the center of the universe for healing. And, um, and it was also a place where um, the, uh, you know, the famous Hippocrates was from, coast, on the island, but not at the temple necessarily. So here I was standing at this temple and I was thinking to myself, wow, this is amazing. I'm at this like, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, there are ruins now, but you could see the, 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 mob, the marble, you know, remnants of the colonnades and things like that. And I was just like, wow, I'm, I'm like sitting at, the, I'm standing right here at the citadel of, of, of medicine. This was like 2,300 years ago. This was like the place to be if you were going to deliver the, you know, world-class healthcare. Well, I recounted this story. I, I actually read this, uh, this book um, that was actually about the heart. It was a, a story uh, written by two brothers, actually, the Amidon brothers. And, and it was like the history of the heart. And I remember there was a story in that about Hippocrates and how he had this um, encounter here at this temple, but at the stairs, at the temple at the bottom of the stairs. And what happened is they were a healing priest that were taking care of patients at this Asclepolis, you know, temple. And, uh, you know, it was the place to be. And they counted this story about this one guy who was a businessman. And the long story is, uh, long story short is, after this person went to this healing temple, he never got better. But Hippocrates was practicing a different kind of medicine. He was practicing the kind of medicine that kind of embodies and really is the tenets of this learn. He listened to this patient. So this patient left this place, didn't feel better, actually collapsed in front of the temple. And 
Hippocrates was there. And why was he there? Because he was there taking care of the patients that couldn't afford to go inside of that temple. And here he is with this person, you know, this businessman who apparently suffered what sounded like a heart attack. And Hippocrates started to talk to him and started to ask him questions about what kind of work he did and started to understand and appreciate what stresses he had in his life. He did this thorough physical exam and he took him to his very humble place, his healing place. And over the course of a few days, he told the man that he needed to change his diet, he needed to exercise, he needed to relax and get rid of his stress. And he also did at the time is described that he, he did a bloodletting, which was like to just, you know, you'd lance his wrists and let some blood out just so he could restore some balance. So this guy, after leaving the care of Hippocrates felt really great. And then the legend goes that a few weeks later, there was a rumor on the island that Hippocrates was implicated in the burning down of the temple. <laughs> and, and so I For think his about own it, medical practice. Yeah. So then I think about it and I'm like, you know, there's lots of people that are written about this sort of creative destruction of healthcare, right? Because sometimes if you think about it, healthcare has become this business and this sort of like machine where you just go in to like, you know, these big fancy buildings and you just kind of go in and sometimes you can just, you know, sometimes great care is rendered there, but sometimes you just feel like a cog in the wheel. You just go in and kind of take care of you and then you, know, you kind of spit it out, you know, and they did a procedure, they gave you some pills and they, you know, sent you out. But every once in a while, you'll encounter that one doctor, right? That one nurse, that one allied health professional that just stops for just a minute and just kind of makes you feel like a human being and makes you feel like mm. you're really special and really is in tune and in touch and wants to learn what's really bothering you and try and address that. And that was kind of the example that the story sort of pretends with Hippocrates. And I think it's, it's no mistake that we have him as sort of the, the standard bear for our oath. Now, also on the island was a tree called Hippocrates, the Hippocrates tree. And it was there that allegedly the legend is he would teach the physicians and the uh, sort of doctors of the day how to practice this art of medicine. And he would talk about how important it was to listen to patients, to do a thorough physical exam, to understand what ails them, and to blend the science at the time of what was known with, you know, this empathy and this really compassionate care. And, and I think it, you know, sets as an example. If you, you know, read the words of the Hippocratic Oath, I think it, it really embodies, I think, the tenets of what he was espousing and practicing and teaching back then. And it's endured for thousands of years. Well, and I, I love that as you talk about your book, the art of human care, right? That there, there's a science for sure to it, obviously. Yeah. But the art, and I believe this too, is really what heals people. You know, the, the book learning gets you so far, but the healing happens in the art of, of the practice. Absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely believe that. <laughs> Well, I mean, I feel like I could have a whole other podcast with you because I'm really curious about the seven pillars that you write about. Can you sum those up somewhat quickly? Uh, somewhat quickly. <laughs> uh, well, let's make it a teaser. So uh, the seven pillars are actually something that um, I came to uh, embrace when I um, was deployed in Afghanistan. Uh, and um, it was a really tough deployment for me. Uh, and it was uh, it was a it was a challenging time, and I came back with uh, with uh, uh, 
a lot of anxiety and uh, and sort of a, a a disposition that was really you know hard to describe. Maybe maybe it may be embodied as a you know PTSD or some sort of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, and so these seven pillars are actually something that uh, evolved in the writing of a book, which became therapeutic. And that was my first novel, which was Gifts of the Heart. And in it, I write uh, about these seven things that the, and I won't tell, I'd give the story away so that someone will be curious <laughs> and go after it. But there are seven pillars that save the protagonist in the book. And the book was based on uh, a fictional uh, novel about a surgeon that goes out to Afghanistan and uh, gets into a serious accident and the helicopter crash. And, uh, and he uh, is in the space in between life and death. And during that time, he has a spiritual encounter and the seven uh, pillars of life are the wisdom that are imparted to him that bring him out of his, uh, his space into life. <laughs> Okay, well, people will have to go get that book if they want to know. Um, Dr. Teta, thank you so much. Your book, it's so dark today. It like, got dark as we, um, as we talked here. I forget how early it gets dark here still. The Art of Human Care. Um, and if people are interested, where can they find you? I know you've done a lot of TED Talks, and I, yeah, sure. I want to be your patient, <laughs> even though you don't see people... <laughs> generally but well I, I always tell my friends I hope they don't have to see me as a patient because that means there's something wrong with their heart or lungs so right. you know, did you that. did you save the life today uh you know I like to think that I save a life every day <laughs> I love that yes <laughs> and I think we do you know in every in every in every small way you know I think you were minimizing and, and contrasting what you did today and maybe what I did <laughs> And then you should never do that. And, and why I mean that is that you never know what an encounter can have with another individual and how just saying hello to someone or smiling or presenting some kind thought or just a positive uh, remark to someone can absolutely like lift the person from the depths of despair. You know, I will say that one of the things, unfortunately, that we're seeing in our transplant community and in sort of our practice now is a lot of donors that are victims of suicide. And it's really, I mean, mm -hmm. understandable, I'm sure, yeah. because you think about the COVID uh, crisis that we're all enduring and isolation and, and, and sort of the despair and, and folks losing jobs and losing loved ones and, and just everything, you know, so it's not surprising. And, you know, when people are there in that kind of low place, you know, you never know what your encounter with that individual that you might see in a supermarket or in a grocery store or, you know, down the road at the gas station. So it's just being kind to someone. And, you know, just a simple act like that, you ne you actually may be saving a life and, and you never know. So, um, yeah, you never discount any small encounter or opportunity to make a difference in one's life. And, and whether that's doing lung transplant or heart transplant or it's just saying hello and just really genuinely asking someone, how are they doing? And thinking about how you can learn about them and maybe perhaps offer some pearl of wisdom or help. Yeah, I love that. And it is it is actually how I live. I just thought the contrast was funny as I was thinking about my day. 
um, which basically because I rarely leave my house or see someone else. But I, I do make a purpose, make a point, especially when I'm shopping at the grocery store, which is maybe the only place I go right now, mm. um, that I really know the people who are there who are helping me. I go at the same time every week. I say, see the same people every week. I don't know their names sometimes, mm-hmm. like even just the people who are shopping. Mm-hmm. But we recognize each other, and it's like this camaraderie that we have. Yeah. And I often think to myself, I wonder if like there were weeks where I didn't show up or they didn't show up, if they'd wonder mm-hmm. what happened to me. Because sure. I would certainly feel that way about them. Like, yeah. where did they go? What happened? Even though I didn't know them personally, I felt like we, sh- we had a shared experience every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. So, yeah. so yes. where, where could people find you? Yeah, so drteta.com is my website, and all the books are there, um, Amazon as well, uh, but D-O-C-T-O-R, and then my last name, T-E-T-T-E-H.com. I have a Twitter uh, account as well, and I do try and tweet sometimes, so uh, Twitter, and also on Instagram. The Art of Human Care is on Instagram, so um, we have some books coming out. Two more books are coming out in the spring. Uh, under the series of the Art of Human Care. It will be the Art of Human Care for COVID-19 and also the Art of Human Care for AI. So I hope your audience will be intrigued enough by our conversation here to want to learn more and perhaps even uh, read one of those books and, and certainly the Art of Human Care as well. Yeah, and they're beautiful, and they're not daunting. So No, that's right. So you should mention that, and maybe I can, the art of human care is called that because there's art in the book. So it's not, it's a pic that has pictures in it. I will tell everyone that don't worry about it. It's a short read and it has pictures. I know when, it, when we, when we originally scheduled and I think you booked it like a week out and I was like, I'm never going to be able to read that book in time, but I probably could have. It's the only time where I was like, oh, yay. It's not that long. It's not that long. It's intentionally made to be short. I know that we have uh, many distractions in our lives now. But there are lots of pictures in it, and it's beautiful artwork. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, then it's really a tome. But it's an easy read, and uh, there's lots of art to uh, be uh, very lifting on the soul. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for your wisdom and for what you're doing in this world, because it's, uh, it's important work. Well, thank you for what you do and uh, for this platform and for giving me the opportunity to share with the audience. I really appreciate it. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.